A healthy gut community is very much this balance where all of the microbes are constantly talking to each other and exchanging messages via the production of small molecules. They have a big family relationship and then you bring in a new member and that member doesn't necessarily fit into this already well-established dynamic. I'm Jane Grogan and I'm a scientist, specifically an immunologist, so someone who studies how the immune system works. One key part of my job as a scientist is to communicate ideas with other scientists and also with people outside of the field. One of the cool things is this podcast allows me to do both. For the past two seasons, I've had the privilege to speak to some of the brightest minds in research, but I'm not done yet. This season, I'm going back into the bar to see what my colleagues are doing to research some of the most complex diseases and see what they're up to. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. Our bodies are full of bacteria, right? If you had to guess how many pounds of bacteria were in your body, what would your guess be? How many pounds? Huh? Pounds? I'll say two. Pounds of bacteria? Six. <laughs> uh, let's see, if it's a hundred pound person, I would say 12. I would guess about 10 pounds. Uh, five. You know, a common place for bacteria is on our skin, right? But I definitely don't have a thick layer of bacteria that I can see. And in our gut, I don't know, you know, a couple pounds. I say a lot. The microbiome has been getting a lot of attention in the mainstream media. So what's the big deal? Here with me today to help understand is someone who thinks about this deeply day and night, Alison Bird. Welcome, Alison. Hi, Jane. Why don't we start with the definition of microbiome or microbiota, which it's sometimes called. So microbiome is generally refers to genes, and these are the bacteria, fungi, and viruses that live inside of us and on us. In contrast, the microbiota often refers to the actual organisms or microbes themselves. When we think about microbiome or when we hear about it, most people think about the gut, but that's not strictly true. So it is in the gut, but it's also lots of other places in our body. And what's interesting is that the bacteria in our mouths are very different from the bacteria in our gut, which are very different from the bacteria on our skin. And I assume that's largely because of the different niches they're found and the different environments and nutritions that they're being exposed to. Exactly. And in addition, actually, the oxygen availability. That's one really unique thing about the gut that separates them from the bacteria in the rest of our body sites is they live without oxygen. And so they've evolved to basically survive in that anaerobic environment. And they don't mix very often in a healthy state, but what's interesting is in a disease state, you sometimes see bacteria that are typically restricted to the mouth that are actually colonizing in our guts. So one example of this is patients who have colorectal cancer. They've actually been able to identify biofilms or kind of groups of bacteria on the tumors themselves. So what's the school of thought on that? Is it that the bacteria's drifting about or moving about into different niches of the body all the time it, and they can't colonize because there's other healthy bacteria there and that it's only when that healthy environment is perturbed that a bacteria could kind of take control of a unique niche? Absolutely. In the healthy state, there's all of this competition and 
a new member isn't necessarily welcome. But in a tumor, the environment is very different than in the rest of the gastrointestinal tract. So in that new environment, there's a new niche and a new opportunity for someone to move in. I remember even at high school, when the classic thing we did was put our hands on plates, on agar plates, incubate them overnight at a certain uh, temperature, and then look at them the following day or days to see what kind of bacteria and yeast had grown out. Yeah, and that was, a, historically, that's how the microbiome was studied. And it actually totally underrepresented what bacteria, fungi, viruses are present on us, because those plates provide a very different source of nutrients than what's actually in our intestines or on our skin. So on a plate for the skin, the majority of bacteria that grow are staphylococcus. They're the weed, a cultural weed, we used to refer to them. So they grow up very fast, very quickly. Super quick, they the will cultures. just totally take over the plate. But when you do more of a sequence-based analysis, you see much more diversity, such as the, pro, the, the abundance of propionia bacteria, which you can only grow in a um, partially anaerobic environment. So this is one of the big advances in the gut microbiome, was the ability to actually culture bugs and grow them in anaerobic or a non-oxygenated environment. But the sheer numbers of cells that we're talking about, or, or different kind of bacterial species, mm -hmm. is um, kind of mind-blowing. When you think about the number of microbes in the gut, for example, what kind of number are we talking about? Probably hundreds of species. And then within those species, you actually can have different strains. So this is getting even deeper, more specific than the species level. Um, the definition of strain is highly debated in the field. So there's not kind of an exact genomic definition. What a species is to one person is totally different than what a species is to another researcher. And the mass must be quite large. Yes, I've seen this number somewhere, like pounds of bacteria in our body. Yeah, I read somewhere that it's three or five pounds, which is about, you know, if you mushed it all together, it's about the size of a human brain. I was going to say um, pack of sugar, so we know where my mind is. Slabs of butter. <laughs> Jane? Hey, Wellington. What do you guys mean by sequence-based analysis? So every bacteria's got its own DNA code, right, and a sequence, the same way humans do our genetic code. And... Using that information, we can take a mix of bacteria and using sequence analysis, we can say there's 10 different kinds of bacteria in there and we can name them based on that sequence. Um, whereas in the old days, just using agar plates, we could only select for a few, so we couldn't get the full repertoire of the bacteria in the sample. How are we learning about the diversity of the bugs and then what these bugs are actually doing? So the second question is kind of the, the golden ticket. Um, so far, a lot of what has been done is kind of, I've heard it referred to before as stamp collecting, where people are just deeply sequencing these communities to just find, try and see what's there, classifying it at a genomic scale. So actually looking at the DNA sequences present in a sample and matching them to a database of sequenced bacterial genomes. So that's like early day discoverers just kind exactly. of documenting what's around It's them. like the human, the original days of sequencing the human genome. We were just trying to get it all out there and now we're going back and trying to figure out what are all of these genes doing. Um, and so that's kind of now what's really happening in the microbiome world is the million dollar question of what are the bacteria doing? 
I think be, when the Human Genome Project was done, we thought by just annotating it, we'd understand it. So what happens when the microbiome goes wrong, so to speak? So our microbiome is always in a balance with us. So there's always this equilibrium between our bacteria and our host cells and molecules. And sometimes in certain disease states, this balance is shifted. Some bacteria has taken over and gone awry and um, induces inflammation. And this is often associated with inflammatory diseases such as IBD or inflammatory bowel disease or what we see in the skin with atopic dermatitis. But it's often a chicken egg question. So uh, we'll often sample the microbiome once the inflammation's already started. So we don't know prior to the inflammation what happened first. Did the bacteria outgrow or did the inflammation start? Because they're, they're highly linked with each other. I think what's really interesting about that is the homeostasis idea that that's broken because the diseases you've mentioned are very, um, like IBD, are chronic. So it's not a case of just the microbiome resetting itself and everything will be fine. This inflammation now is driving some loop forward that's affecting the, the bacteria as well. Right, there's lots of different nutrients available in an inflammatory condition. Parts of the extracellular matrix of proteins are breaking down, so there's new food and new nutrients. and. Um, again, I think aerobic conditions actually change in these inflammatory environments. Let, let me ask a simple question that may have a complex answer. Why do we have this system of bacteria and, and a complicated microbiome in us anyway? So we really evolved with our microbes. If you go back and look at kind of all multicellular organisms, they come with their own sort of bacteria to help them survive in this world. So for us, we really need them to help break down the food that we eat. So when you eat a meal of complex carbohydrates and proteins, we only have some of the proteins and the enzymes which are needed to break down that food. So a lot of the things that we need are actually byproducts of the bacteria further processing the food that we eat. So they're processing out the nutrition for us. Exactly. We can actually take advantage of this property um, when we think about drug development. Yes. So there's been some exciting stories around this, both good and bad. Several of the drugs we take are in what they call a pro form, where it's not activated yet. There's some extra component that needs to be chopped off, and then the drug does what role it needs to play. And that chopping can all often be performed by bacteria, so the bacteria will actually activate this inactivated drug in our bodies. We did actually have a, a, a previous session talking about that, about how we make small molecules and the chemistry behind that. And key to that is actually after you ingest mm -hmm. the pill that it actually gets broken down the correct way to enter the bloodstream. And then on the flip side of the bacteria activating in a positive way, we've also seen examples where bacteria can take a molecule and actively um, modify it so it becomes toxic. So this comes back to all of this buzz around personalized medicine, personalized approaches. So certain, for certain people, some drugs may be really beneficial because they have the appropriate bacteria to activate them. But for other individuals, they might actually have a bacteria that could modify the drug to make it inactive or perhaps even harmful. Jane, as if finding a medicine wasn't hard enough, how do you account?
account for this extra factor. It's actually a really complicated thing, and that's why making drugs is actually very difficult. If you, if you remember our show on season two with Wendy Young, she talked a lot about making chemical drugs and having to get them in a state into the gut where they were metabolized from an original version to the actual druggable version. Um, and that's why work by um, scientists like Allison are really, really important because they're helping us understand what the landscape of the chemistry and the bacteria in the gut actually is. Maybe we could take another step back and think about what happens to the gut when you take antibiotics? Because antibiotics we want to take to target some invasive, invasive or pathogenic bacteria, not our commensals that are sitting happily in our gut. Right, so our antibiotics have actually historically not been designed to only kill the pathogens of interest. There's also a lot of collateral damage because a lot of the targets of bacteria are shared not only between the pathogens but also between the commensals. What several studies have shown is that in healthy individuals that kind of receive one course of antibiotics, several weeks later you kind of go, you return back to what your normal state was. It may not always be the exact same bacteria that have come back. Sometimes there could be a similar bacterial functionally that's kind of taken the spot. But like over, overall the community looks very similar. Can I ask, um, how do you measure that? Historically they did it via culture analysis. So they just try, as we were discussing, before, they try to culture and grow as many bacteria as they can. But now we do it all via sequencing approach. So you basically collect a stool sample, you extract all the DNA, you use a DNA sequencer to get all the ATCGs out, and then you basically try to identify what all of those individual sequences are to a database of sequenced bacteria. So that's how we're able to classify what microbes are present. So a person's gut will repopulate itself eventually after a bacteria, after an antibacterial drug with its own bacteria. Yes. Like, like its own fingerprint, so to say, will repopulate. And what repopulates in me is going to be very different to you. Right, because we also started different. Ah. Um, and we can repopulate because although antibiotics are very good at getting out the grand majority of bacteria, there's also bacteria hiding in the crypts or the folds of our intestine. And so when um, the antibiotics go away, those bacteria have an opportunity to kind of regrow and take their place back in the microbial world. But you made a good point about how our communities are actually very unique. For a long time, people have been trying to describe what is a healthy gut community. And there's not really any exact answer for that. Your healthy may be very different than my healthy. So you're first colonized with microbes when you're born. And so we evolve with those microbes kind of our whole lives. Um, so we have our own relationship with our microbes, I guess. So, um, <laughs> this blows my mind, that New York Times article where that guy stripped himself of everything. He like tried That's to recolonize his whole I don't body. I whatever happened to that, but it was a horrifying <laughs> video to watch. Jane, you said colonized. I guess I always assumed we were born with bacteria? No, there's no bacteria in the placenta. We're exposed to it at the moment of birth, whether this is through the birthing canal or just in the environment around us. What's really interesting, that by about the age of three, our bacteria fingerprint is more or less set and the colonies that we have or the types of bacteria we have are the ones we're going to have for the rest of our lives. 
is it possible to reconstitute your bacteria or your microbiome with someone else's in order to drive a good bacterial environment that could be good for drug outcome or good for health or something? So this is also becoming more and more popular and, and can be referred to as the fecal microbiome transplant or the FMT. And it's becoming a larger and larger part of clinical practice for patients that have Clostridium difficile infection. That's the infection that causes detrimental diarrhea? That is correct. So it's caused by a bacteria that can form a spore. So these spores can actually survive in the environment. And for healthy individuals, it's not really a problem because when those spores come into us, we have lots of different bacteria that can actually outcompete them so they don't survive or really um, take root and cause problems. Um, but in a patient that has been in the hospital and received several rounds of antibiotics, their gut is kind of empty. There's all of these open niches and resources available that this clostridium can kind of come in and um, sporulate. So this is when it comes out of its spore and is what we typically consider a live bacteria. So in that instance where there's a patient is missing all of its healthy bacteria, the fecal microbiome transplants have been shown to be incredibly effective. And one paper actually reported a 90% response rate. And these are patients where antibiotics just haven't worked and they get this transplant of a fecal community from a healthy donor and it is able to change their lives. So you're providing a variety of different bacteria that can colonize throughout the gut and essentially outcompete. Exactly. The bad it's all about the competition. Since the bacteria being introduced here are foreign, wouldn't your immune cells go crazy? That's kind of the point, actually. As Alison's pointed out, we've got a very delicate balance between our bacteria and our immune system and the epithelial cells that form a barrier in between. By introducing foreign bacteria, what we're hoping is that you'll reset the right bacterial niches that will instruct the epithelium in the right way, that'll bring the immune system back into a normal balance. So what's really powerful potentially about this approach is that you can reconstitute bacteria in patients that don't have their own bacterial fingerprint anymore. But fast forward to relatively healthy people. <laughs> um, uh, probiotics, can they also add new colonies or better colonies or so-called healthy colonies to an individual's gut. So most probiotics that people take actually are transient. They don't stick in our guts. So a lot of them are actually species that weren't necessarily isolated from a human in the first place. So they're just not designed to colonize. And colonize mean they actually live permanently in our gut after you stop taking the probiotics. So there are certain kinds of bacteria that can only live in the gut because of the niches, the acidity, the nutrients that are available to them. Um, and you just can't add any other bacteria to the gut. No. A healthy gut community is very much this balance where all of the microbes are constantly talking to each other and exchanging messages via the production of small molecules. It's a give and take between all of these different bacteria. They have a big family relationship and then you bring in a new member and that member doesn't necessarily fit into this already well-established dynamic. So a lot of 
some of the benefit that can seem, be seen with probiotics is when they're just kind of there as they're passing through. And there was actually a really neat story that was published somewhat recently where they did, they convinced um, healthy volunteers in Israel to actually take antibiotics. And then they, a subset of those patients actually took probiotics. And what they found is that the individuals who took probiotics actually took longer to get back to their original state than the individuals who were just left to respond on their own. It's so fascinating. I'd like to get back to the, what the bugs are making in terms of metabolites that can be affecting the immune response. Two of the most popular examples that people talk about of metabolites that then go on to influence the immune system, the first ones are short-chain fatty acids. So when you eat food that is full of fiber, we can't actually break down any, most of those fibers ourselves, especially really complex fibers and really complex carbohydrates. So we have special bacteria that can break down those fibers into something called short-chain fatty acids, which then can bind different receptors on our host cells, particularly on host immune cells. And one of the functions that talked about a lot is that these short-chain fatty acids can bind um, the T regulatory immune cells, which are important for kind of maintaining the homeostatic environment in our gut community. Another example is bile acids. So bile acids are actually derivatives of cholesterol. So when you eat a meal, um, that food gets broken down into various cholesterols, which can then be stored in our liver. And then so within the liver, that cholesterol can be broken down into primary bile acids. Those primary bile acids traffic from the liver to our intestines where they encounter bacteria that then modify those bile acids in ways that can't be done by any of our host receptors, proteins, enzymes. So there's certain modifications of the bile acids that are only possible because of bacteria, which is really neat. Then you have these modified bile acids, which you can then see present throughout the body in the systemic circulation. And in fact, a lot of the metabolites present in our circulation are only possible because we actually have bacteria to produce them. The final metabolite that we often measure in our samples is actually related to tryptophan and tryptophan derivatives. So tryptophan is not only found in Turkey and associated with making you fall asleep, but it's actually really important in our bodies and is a common byproduct of bacterial metabolism. We have throughout our body actually receptors for tryptophan, and these are also present on those T regulatory cells. And so by different derivatives of tryptophan binding to these different cells in our body actually help regulate whether our immune system is more in an activated state or more of a suppressive state. I think the field is so interesting because that, you know, tryptophan is an example of a direct metabolite having a direct effect on a, on a T cell. But there's effects on innate cells and those cells migrate elsewhere in the body and have an effect in the brain or in you know, other tissues. And um, I think we've got a lot to work out. Absolutely. Why is the field so excited about yeah, whole microbiome? It all goes back to technology. So first there was the human genome sequencing project and not very long after was the microbiome sequencing project. And one of the first large cohort studies was the human microbiome project which was a few years ago that sampled two or 300 patients across five body sites. And that was 
kind of the first big look at the microbiome. And then ever since then, sequencing studies are just everywhere. So all this sequence and large data that we're generating will allow us not only to annotate the microbiome, but help us to understand more the interaction with the host. How else will this data be used or can be used? So I think it's really exciting that it's gonna help us to better understand our patient populations. We can look for patients' individual fingerprints and how they respond to treatments. And this is being done also in the nutritional space. There was a paper that came out that classified the microbes present in people and correlated this with their diet and how their blood sugar actually looked after eating different foods. And what they found is that in one person, eating an apple did one thing to you, but when I ate an apple, my blood sugar actually went down. So there's different, people respond in different ways to different foods. So why wouldn't they respond in different ways to different drugs? Deconvolving this is going to be, is mind-blowing. So um, just thinking about the large data sets and actually thinking about your day job is, um, you're becoming a biostatistician now. Yes, by, by necessity. We get hundreds of samples and have lots of metadata. So what advice would you give to young biologists out there who are moving into this field, for example? I definitely recommend taking probably statistical courses, even if they're not required. Um, it's just, it's important for everything that we do as a scientist all of the results that you get, you need to be able to understand, is that result meaningful? I mean, at a certain point, you can kind of do it by eye, but when you get these very large data sets, you can't really um, use the, is it bloody obvious <laughs> anymore? <laughs> like, you really kind of need some of these tests to help you interpret what are you seeing. And then you need to be aware of all of the caveats associated with the data. You can't always and especially with the microbiome, since there's always so much coming out every day, there seems like there's some new paper and you read it in the news, uh, all these huge headlines. I do encourage people to be critical. <laughs> exactly. Use your gut instinct. Be critical. Not everything you read. The microbiome does not, under, does not cause everything. Um, it's a very important player. Um, but we're still trying, in a lot of studies, we're still trying to work out the cause and effect. And this is something that probably hasn't been studied as carefully as it needs to be in several studies. But especially in microbiome papers, correlation does not equal causation. I think partly that's because the data sets out there. We're still collecting <laughs> the data to annotate this kind of bacterial and microbiome roadmap. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's really intriguing that we'll understand kind of what each individual set point is and how that differs between you and me, you know, why you and I respond to apples a different way or our immune systems may respond a different way. Um, and then laid on top of that is then how we react to things like drug treatments and therapies. And underlying all of that is kind of our genetic predisposition. So the microbiome is just kind of, so in a lot of people, why you may respond to apples differently is your genetics might be different in addition to your microbiome. So the combination of those two together impacts the final glucose output. So what does the future look like? If you had a line of sight 10 years out from now, where will the field be and what will the next generation of scientists be working on? 
hopefully we'll have a greater understanding of what the bacteria in us and inside of us are actually doing. But it could be, so the problem with FMTs is they're not very um, reproducible. So now all, there's all of these efforts within companies to actually select particular bacteria and put them into a pill. And this could become a totally new therapeutic what modality. About, what about the microbiome as a time capsule? Is there a, a place where we could think about banking our own bacteria so that we could use it for our own individualized pills later on? If it were feasible, I think it would be a great idea. Stem cell cancer patients, they've actually started showing that, so they often have to get antibiotics. So before they get the antibiotics, they'll bank their stool, and then as soon as they've gone off the course of the antibiotics, they'll give them an autologous fecal microbiome transplant, or they actually give them their own microbes back. And they find that these patients often do better. Um, so I think there is absolutely a justification for having a hypothetical stool bank for people while you're healthy and in a positive state. Whether that will ever actually catch on, who knows, but there would definitely be a need for it should it arise. I'm just so excited by this field because it's going to unlock so much in terms of understanding biology, disease, healthy state and disease states. It's another example of where two different disciplines collide, the studying of bacteria and the studying of the immune system. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and good luck with all your research. My pleasure. Thanks, Jane. Jane, honest question. Do you remember your first STAS course? Sadly, I do. How would a STAS course help you now? That's what computers are for. I remember the first STATS course I took in high school as a mathematics student and doing some of the first computer coding. And then when I moved into biology, I thought, I never have to do that again. Now, even in my own work, we use statistics all the time. We take complex data, you know, vast uh, bioinformatic databases, we generate them, we use other people's, and we have to compute the science that these databases are revealing to us. So I use computers now all the time, I use statistics all the time as a biologist, and I think every biologist out there is going to have to do that. The microbiome is so fascinating. This was such a great interview with Alison. It really highlights how the world around us, the environment around us, really impacts how we present, how we develop disease or not. Um, and it certainly brings a whole lot of questions to my world of immunology. In our next episode, we're gonna continue down this path a little bit and really focus on how the microbiome affects a particular disease called inflammatory bowel disease. This is a disease in which the um, walls of the gut break down, partly due to the immune system and partly due to the imbalance in the bacteria there. So we're gonna take a deeper dive into trying to put those two things together to understand the disease. It's gonna be a great episode, so stay tuned. In the meantime, keep telling your science fans about us. Like us on Facebook and Twitter, download the podcast from your favorite podcast app, and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and now for me, it's back to the lab. <laughs>